The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we can learn to use them in new and powerful ways to create the life we've always dreamed of. On our program today, with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon, we'll address who you are, how to come to know what you believe and why, how to accept and love yourself, and how you can make changes that help you create the empowered, happy, successful life you want. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from Scottsdale, Arizona. And today, as a starter, go to the Self-Improvement blog You'll find Guy Winch's picture there, a review of his book, an article he's written on self-esteem that appeared in Psychology Today online. And do not miss the two videos that you'll find in the right-hand column. They're trailers for both of his books, and they are so, so good. Not only do they inform you about what the, the books are about, but they're funny. You might want to watch them a couple times. I, I have, and every time I see something new. Uh, <clears throat> the other day, I was playing with my infamous puppy, and he got a little too rough, and he scratched my arm in his attempt to get the ball. I looked down to see blood running down my arm, and no big deal. I put some Neosporin on it and a Band-Aid and went about my business, uh, business as usual. Today, it's almost healed. There's just a little scab. You wouldn't even know he did it. He'll probably do it again. But later in the day, I was talking to someone who was abrasive and disrespectful and just actually snarky. I didn't think I deserved that. And, and I have to say that from this person, my feelings were kind of hurt. How do I put a Band-Aid on that? They hurt a lot more than my arm did. What about you? If your best friend told you to get lost, what do you do to stop the emotional bleeding? What if you lost your job and you realize that you're out of date for the workplace? Is there some soothing salve you can put on those feelings to help you get through it? Um, is there a Band-Aid for not feeling good enough? Actually, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there is, and our guest today is going to talk about it. Dr. Guy Winch has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. He writes the popular squeaky wheel blog for psychologytoday.com and is the author of two books which have already been translated into nine languages. He lives and practices in New York City where on rare occasion he can be seen performing stand-up comedy his newest book is Emotional First Aid, Practical Strategies for Treating Failure, Rejection, Guilt, and Other Everyday Psychological Injuries. It is such a pleasure to welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show, Dr. Guy Winch. Guy, welcome. 
Thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me back. Oh, I'm so delighted. I still love the book, um, The Squeaky Wheel. And if people don't know how to make a a complaint sandwich, they really need to get that book. I can't tell you how many times I've used the information that you gave, and it works every single time. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. For those who didn't hear you the first time you were here, who is Guy Winch? Where are you from? How did you get to be where you are? <laughs> you know, in a few words or less, well, um, as you said, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. Uh, people usually detect I have a bit of an accent. I was uh, born in, in England, but I was raised actually in Israel, and I have uh, then came to the United States to do my graduate work, and I've been here quite a few years. I, uh, I am a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in New York City, which I've had for over 20 years. As you said, on the, uh, on the rare nights, I do dabble in stand-up comedy. Um, it's a little less when I have a book out because it takes a lot of uh, time to write and to, and to do publicity, but it's something I enjoy doing. I, I have this uh, agreement with myself that I never speak about being a psychologist when I do stand-up so that it's just a very different mindset and I can just separate those two worlds and, uh, and I find that to be very beneficial. And I, my recent book, as you said, is Emotional First Aid. And I love your intro because it, I wrote it exactly for that reason, that we, we get these scratches and we get you know, colds and we sprain our muscles and we get all these physical injuries all the time. And when we do, we know exactly what to do. We know how to treat it. We know how to make it better. We know how to prevent it from getting worse. We know what to do so the cut doesn't become infected and so the cold doesn't turn into a pneumonia. But when it comes to psychological injuries, which we sustain all the time as well, you know, because we we encounter failure and rejection and loneliness and loss and a lot of the other things I speak about in the book all the time on a daily basis. But when we do, we don't even have the awareness that there is an injury there to be treated a lot of the time. And even if we do, we have no idea what steps we can take to treat it or what steps we can take to prevent it from becoming worse. There is a huge gap in awareness that we have when it comes to physical injuries versus psychological ones. And I wrote the book to try and close that gap a little bit. You know, it's so interesting that this has been right in front of us, actually, and nobody's ever thought to do this before. Uh, It's like nobody thought we could handle our own feelings or something. I don't know what it is. What led you, what got you interested in doing this? How did you realize that this was a problem and, and you could help you know, help solve it, give people some some things to do to deal with their own feelings? Well, I really, it, mostly from my work in my private practice, because people would come in sometimes and they would talk about what seemed to them um, even to be a kind of minor incident. You know, this, this person, you know, like one, one woman I remember, she came in and she was really, really upset because a week earlier she passed a neighbor in the supermarket and then she was sure the neighbor saw her, but the neighbor didn't say hello. And she felt really, really rejected, and she ended up stewing over that and, and, the, and, and all these fantasies in her head about what that meant, about whether she was welcome in the neighborhood or not, or what that meant about what the neighbor and the neighbor's friends thought of her and thought of her husband and of her... It became this huge thing in her head. And, you know, and then, you know, a week later she came in and she goes, oh, you know... 
turns out I saw my neighbor, and my neighbor said she, you know, one of her kids really, really had to go to the bathroom, so she was just running out of there. She didn't want to stop and say hello. So, you know, there's a very innocent thing. But before she knew that, she felt so rejected. She stewed over it for 10 days. She felt really bad. Her self-esteem was bad. And, and it really occurred to me when I hear these kinds of things, and I heard others and many like them, that, wow, that's like an injury, except it wasn't treated at the time. So it got a little bit infected. Now, luckily, she found out something that helped, albeit 10 days later. But I started thinking about, wow, do we, do we know how to treat those injuries? Is there research that tells us what we can do when we feel rejected? I mean, I know a few things we can do, but what does the research tell us we can do? And the most shocking thing, as you said, was when I was discussing this with my literary agent um, at the time, I said to her, okay, so here's my idea for a book. And she looked at me and she goes, well, that somebody must have written that before. And I'm like, yes, but I looked and I couldn't find it. In other words, no one had. No one has actually thought to sit down, who's a, who's a psychologist, who has a, a background in science, to look at the science and distill from it. And then, and for me, my advantage is I can distill from the science and then I can suggest it to my patients and see how they do with it and see what works and see what doesn't. But no one had sat down to say, let's close that gap between how we think of our bodies and how we think of our minds and our emotions. And Are to we, me, it's what? terrible. I'm sorry, Irene. Are, are we on? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I don't know where we were when that went down. Oh, well, um, I was just saying that I, I was talking about how, to me, it seemed really um, uh, strange that there is this huge gap between how we think of our bodies and how we think of our minds, and so much so, not just among the public, obviously, but among the psychologists and the professionals, because no one had written this before. No one had think to, to start writing and working on how we address regular emotional wounds when we have them. You know, about as much as we talk about feelings is, you know, you don't want to stuff them, you want to deal with them. Um, all, I want to say blah, blah, blah. Um, but nobody really tells us how to deal with them. You need to deal with your anger. You don't stuff it. You need to deal with the guilt. But but how? You finally have done that. And and to me, the 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 most important part about doing it was being able to break it down into really really practical steps. Because I think there are a lot of books out there that you know talk about very specific topics. Let's say, and they and they tell people where they should get to without quite telling them how to get there. It's to like me, telling me to drive to New York and not giving me a GPS or a map. Right, and I think it's exactly that. And, you know, uh, I'll just give you one example, because even when I was doing the research, it came up a lot. Um, and that was about loss. And, you know, when, when people experience some kind of loss or trauma, um, the, the real, the general wisdom, the thing that we find in the studies repeatedly, is that if you can, in time, make sense of that loss, if you can, in time, find a way to lend it meaning, to find a way to derive some kind of purpose, to find a way to kind of get something from it, to learn an appreciation from it, or to, or to be able to make changes and live your life that's more in line with your values and your beliefs, if that's what you can take from it, people who can do that come out much more, uh, um, you know, much less, un, you know, much more unscathed from a loss and a trauma. They can even come out with growth and with personal development. And then all of the books you have out there, and so many of them will tell you, you need to find meaning. You need to find purpose. Yes. How? 
What do you exactly. do to get that meaning and purpose? It's fine that you have a case example that tells you this person did this and this person did that. How do I do it? What are the steps? What are the exercises I can use to try and figure that out? And so to me, it was really important to break it down into the how. And you do break it down. And basically, you look at six emotional wounds and then self-esteem. Yes. How did you... And I tried to... Find some gaps here where you know where things would not fit. I really can't. How did you decide on these six? Because they seem to be pretty comprehensive. Um, it relied on two things. First of all, again, it was what I was hearing about mostly in my office. What I was hearing about just from my you know social life, from friends, from people. I, I I really opened my ears when I was working on this book. What are people talking about that's bothering them? Now, they don't classify it into, you know, I have an issue with rejection, I had an issue with guilt, I had an issue with loneliness. Of course, people use descriptive terms. They're just talking about themselves. They're not labeling things. But I was labeling them when I was hearing it. I was going, oh, there's a guilt issue. There's a loneliness issue. There's a failure issue. And so I, I made a list of things which I thought were the most common that were coming up. And then the second thing was I needed to know that there was current research that looked at these kinds of psychological injuries, that looked at what happens to us when we sustain them, and that looked at what are the things that people can do that have been proven in the science, in the studies, in the research, to be effective in dealing with them or in certain aspects of them. So it, to me, those, those were the combination, and that's the list I ended up with. And the seventh, as you said, low self-esteem, I, I consider that really kind of bouts of low self-esteem because self-esteem is really an underlying theme that underlies a lot of these kinds of injuries. And I wanted to end on that because I think it's, it's, it's one of those concepts that's very misunderstood, um, that people uh, often have a lot of misinformation about, that people have had many attempts to, to try and work on their self-esteem and have failed in many ways. To me, it's self-esteem and diets go hand in hand because they're both those things that people try to work on all the time and fail all the time. Um, and so I wanted to end with that because I thought that was a really important uh, theme. And, and bouts of self-esteem or bouts of low self-esteem is something we all uh, deal with in that sense. Oh, I think we all deal with it. And I want to talk more about that. But right now it's time for us to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about these emotional wounds. This is Irene Conlon with my guest Guy Winch saying stay tuned. We'll be right back. your better business achieve that goal make good on that resolution the voice america empowerment channel it's your world motivate change succeed wealth solutions for the 99 percent is a weekly talk show focused on helping you develop and execute a game plan to build wealth your host paula joy who built a 50 million dollar plus company in less than five years believes it's impossible to be poor in america 
and he'll show you why with his innovative strategies. Joining Paul as co-host is radio personality Kim Reed, an experienced entrepreneur and corporate leader who's known as the Corporatepreneur. The show is upbeat, fun, and informative. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The challenges facing our teens today mean that more than ever, we need to be there to support them and encourage them. The Dr. Stem Show is here to provide discussions about topics that will help promote healthy relationships, self-image, and success for teens, parents, and the community. Our young people can achieve more in life than they ever dreamed possible. The Dr. Stem Show, hosted by Dr. Stem Malatini, will foster these discussions and encourage your participation. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and 9 p.m. GMT on Voice America Empowerment. When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the self improvement show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Guy Winch. We're talking about emotional first aid, uh, a topic that's so long overdue. Guy has written a book by that title, Emotional First Aid, and it's really worth the time. And anything you have to spend to get that book, just do it. Um, it's, it's extremely helpful. You identify six emotional wounds and, and then you do a good bit on self-esteem guy. Let's go through those and just basically, you know, why did you put this one in there? You, you talk about other wounds that come from it. You know, if you want to mention those, fine, but let's run through those so people know what it is you're dealing with in the book. The first one was rejection. We all know that one. Yeah, and I, and I start the book with rejection because I think it's the most common uh, psychological injury that we kind of get in life. And, I mean, it used to be bad enough with rejection between the families and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues. 
and our you know acquaintances but now we have social media and now people are feeling and people actually do feel this you know they're getting really really upset because they liked all their friends vacation posts but they put their picture up and their friend didn't like it back and they feel really upset and this person feels really upset because that person didn't retweet their tweet and this person didn't <laughs> I haven't them. even thought about that no it's true on social media people are feeling rejected right and left and there's so many opportunities because there you know you, you post something you're really proud of and you have all these 300 friends and only two of them said like now, you do feel bad about that because you're going around saying like to their stuff. Why aren't they liking it? Now, true, it's social media, so they're not paying attention. They're away. It's not something they're checking all the time. But there are innumerable opportunities to feel rejected on social media. So it's really a gauntlet uh, today that we have to get through. And it's the most common thing. And that's why I started uh, with rejection. But the second one I talk about is uh, loneliness. And loneliness really often um, begins with feelings of rejection. Because when we feel rejected, we often can feel very raw and feel very defensive and feel like we want to be risk-averse and not put ourselves out there again. When, when somebody has a bad breakup, they'll often not want to go uh, on a date, not because they're just uh, upset about losing that person, but because they're just feeling very vulnerable and they don't want to expose themselves to another possibility of rejection. But if that goes on for too long, if they start to withdraw for too long, then they can get caught in this cycle where, you know, the more they've withdrawn, the more vulnerable they feel, the more desperate they feel, the least they want, you know, the less they want to risk things, and they can end up feeling extremely lonely. And loneliness is not a mild thing. Loneliness is not a small thing. We tend to think of it as, well, you know, it's unfortunate and you feel bad when you feel lonely. But chronic loneliness has huge implications for our mental health and actually even bigger implications for our physical health. In terms of our mental health, it puts us at risk for depression. It puts us at risk for Alzheimer's disease. But in terms of our physical health, it really impedes our, it affects our cardiovascular system. It affects our immune system functioning to the point where there are studies in which say that the risks to our health that chronic loneliness poses are as significant as the risks of cigarette smoking because it can literally shave years of our lives. People who are chronically lonely don't live as long, period. And that's shocking, you know, because cigarette packs come with warnings from the Surgeon right. General letting you know this is very dangerous. But loneliness doesn't come with warnings. We're not aware that it's actually dangerous to your health and so dangerous to your health and to your mental health. And so loneliness is something we really, really have to address, and we often have friends or family members who we can see are very lonely, and we don't address it with them. And perhaps we should, because that's actually something that they're not aware how much that's Well, and that's an interesting point, too, that you can be surrounded by family and friends and still feel lonely, or you can be alone and not be lonely. Right, and there actually there are um, studies that show that... Um, there are many people, there was a study that was done actually in the UK, and they looked at the number of people um, who uh, considered themselves lonely, and a huge percentage of them were married. Because loneliness is about a, your subjective feeling of emotional or social, or social disconnection. It's not about an objective thing. Yes, maybe you work in an office surrounded by people, and maybe you have a spouse, but you might still feel really disconnected from people. You might really feel alone all the time. And so it's not, it's really 
subjective. It's not about quantity. It's about quality and about your subjective experience of that quality. Um, the next thing I wrote about was loss and uh, trauma. Uh, and I spoke about that a little bit in the previous section. But loss and trauma is something we also experience in life a lot. And yes, there's the, the big losses of, you know, tragedies of death and tragedies of divorce and those kinds of things and accidents that take limbs away from us and make us chronically ill or chronically disabled. But the losses we experience in life often come in places in which we don't expect them. People often experience significant, significant loss when they retire because they had so many years of being identified in a certain role, in a certain profession, and, you know, with certain people. And now they don't have that anymore. So what are they now? They used to be this and what are they now? And, and parents often um, experience that when their last child leaves the home because parenting is such an all-encompassing task that when it goes from you're doing that all hours of the day to kids aren't there, uh, there is a huge void that's left. And when you're Well, that friends, brings up the question again, who am I? Yes. And, and loss and, 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 and trauma bring up a lot of identity uh, issues because they really impact our identities and our relationships and how we view the world. We often ask these questions about, well, why did this happen? How do I reconcile this with my faith or with my beliefs about the world and, and my place in it and what can happen? So they bring up a lot of questions, and uh, identity is a big part of that. Then, and then we come to my personal favorite, <coughs> guilt. Yes, guilt. <laughs> and, 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 and guilt is something that we also, we experience hours of it a day, you know, because we experience it in little flashes usually, like, oh, I forgot to call that person. I was said I was going to call them back and I didn't. But you can get that reminder, like the snooze alarm, you know, on your alarm clock every 10 minutes. Oop, haven't called them back, have to remember. Oops, haven't called them back, have to remember. It can add up. We can add up. We can end up feeling hours uh, a day of, of mild guilt and, and hours a week of moderate guilt and, and hours a month of severe guilt. And guilt does a number on us because when it's just a signal of, oops, we did something that might hurt another person or we're about to do something that might hurt another person, the signal alone is great. It really preserves our relationships. It alerts us careful there, that might, you know, be upsetting to someone, and if we care about that someone, we don't do it. Or if we find out we did something and it was upsetting, then we, we quickly try and apologize and, quite, you know, try and take responsibility for it. Um, so guilt serves a useful function, but like most things in psychology, in moderation, in small doses. When it's too much of it, when it's excessive, when it's unresolved, then guilt is not useful. It's really, really damaging. It's damaging to us because it's very, very, it consumes huge amounts of our mental energies, and it's damaging to our relationships. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's very difficult to deal with, especially if our mothers ruled the roost by guilt. No, and a lot we, of us were raised that way. We, we were raised that way. And then we come to rumination. Let's talk about rumination. Yes, well, you know, brooding and stewing and rumination. And people do that very automatically. You know, when we are upset about a distressing thought or an experience or an event or a worry, whatever it is, we, will, we can stew over it for a long time. And it can just keep, you know, we just keep thinking about it and thinking about it. It can go on for weeks and days and, and months even. And, and we've all had that person, and some of us have been that person, that just 
all we could talk about to our friends was that one incident, that one experience with, you know, that one breakup conversation or the one incident with our boss or the one thing that happened that we're really upset about, and it's all we can talk about. And sometimes our friends are like, boy, it's been months. Can we let that one go? And we kind of can't let it go. And we think of rumination as, well, you know, I'm just brooding over it and I'm stewing over it. But that, too, has major consequences psychologically because what we do when we're just brooding and we're just stewing, when we're stewing instead of doing, when we're not taking action, when we're not problem-solving, we're really increasing our passivity. And they did an amazing study just to illustrate this point. They, they looked at women who found a lump in their breast. And they looked at how long it took them after finding a lump to uh, make an appointment with their doctor. And then they divided these women into women who had a tendency to ruminate and to brood and into women who did not. And on average, the women who had the tendency to ruminate and brood waited two months longer to make an appointment with their doctor after finding a lump in their breast. That's wow, a shocking that's amount of time. Yes, I mean, that's critical. And, and it's not as if, and I'm, here I'm actually completely assuming, because I don't know, but it's not as if, I don't think they were sitting around ignoring the lump in their, best, in their breast. I think they were sitting around fretting about it and talking about it, and can you believe I found a lump, and can you believe, and I think they were so used to doing the fretting and doing the stewing and doing the brooding and doing the ruminating that they're just not used to taking action. And probably so overcome by fear, they were paralyzed and were afraid to find out. Right. But what happens when you brood and what happens when you ruminate is you are actually making the feeling worse. We all make, if you are fearful and you keep brooding over it, you are increasing your fear. If you are angry about something and you keep brooding over it, you are increasing your anger. And if you are upset, you're increasing your emotional distress. That's why rumination has also been shown to put us at risk for things like depression because we're so spending so much time focused on these negative incidents and on these negative thoughts. It puts us at risk for depression. We're more likely to get depressed when we ruminate we're more likely to have longer episodes of depression when we get them. We're more likely to develop alcoholism because when we brood about the angering things, we need to take the edge off at the end of the day. And we're more likely to develop eating disorders because lots of the time we manage difficult feelings with food. And so this ruminating, this brooding that we do so naturally that we comes to us and we just indulge it is extraordinarily damaging. And the last thing it does is it puts us at risk for cardiovascular disease because you're releasing these whopping amounts of stress hormones into your bloodstream. And over time, you are having increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So it's not an innocent thing, brooding. And it was one that not a lot of people have written about. But to me, it was so important because we indulge it when it happens. And we mustn't. We must fight it. We must learn how to rid ourselves of it because it's extremely damaging. And, and I think more of us ruminate than we like to admit it's time for us to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the sixth one, which is failure. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Guy Winch, saying stay tuned. We'll be back with more of the Self-Improvement Show. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world. And that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. 
let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology, instant delivery. We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and we'll discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Is there a real magic formula for success or is it something more? Does the divine nature within, when activated, become a powerful unified force that catapults an individual to greatness? Join visionary host Sharon Rose Washington, author, empowerment life coach, and energy healer to explore the answer to the big question of why we are here. She'll have amazing luminary guests ranging from business thought leaders to top celebrities. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What if you were willing to be controversial, choosing kindness instead of judgment, willing to stand out from the crowd, being a leader in creating a new reality, even if others don't follow? You can make a difference. Start by tuning in to The Value of Controversy. Each week, our hosts will bring you the tools to help create the world that you want to live in and explore what's possible when you choose from the controversy of consciousness. Listen for The Value of Controversy every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is theselfimprovementblog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to The Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to The Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. My guest today is Guy Winch who wrote the book Emotional First Aid, and we've been talking about the emotional wounds that he covers in his book. And the last one is failure. And, you know, we've experienced a lot of that in these last couple of years of economic downturn. Um, Talk about failure, Guy. Well, for me, failure, it was a really interesting one because we really do tend to think of failure as, a, uh, as something very negative. And I really think it's important, and this sounds trite, but it really is an essential learning tool. There is no one who goes from A to Z without failing in between. And unless you try and unless you fail, you can't figure out how to make course corrections. You know, we, we don't have this compass that tells us that if we go this way and that way, we'll avoid any kinds of failures or any kinds of setbacks. We're going to encounter them. But the most important thing is, well, what do we do when we encounter them? Do we understand how failure impacts us? Because failures often can distort our perceptions 
goals, so that when we look at our goals, our goals actually seem more difficult to attain than they really are. Not because they are more difficult, because failure distorted our perceptions, and our abilities seem less up to the task. Not that they are less up to the task, but failure distorted our perceptions of our own abilities. We have a lot of research, and I talk about that in the book, that really demonstrates how that actually happens. And so once you know that, you have to know that, you know, after a failure, it's going to seem demoralizing, it's going to seem more difficult, and you're going to seem less able to do it. Those are the kinds of gut feelings we really need to ignore. Now, talk a little bit about, you know, because we can't leave people here with all these wounds. You know, (laughs) I see all these gaping wounds. In your book, you tell people, you help people know what to do. How did you, um, it's almost like you wrote a prescription. Talk a little bit about some of the things people can do in general and one of the and, and you do exercises talk talk about your remedies and your exercises well in general actually i'm going i am going to give you an example from the uh, failure chapter because one of the things that we feel after a failure is we tend to feel very helpless and we tend to feel hopeless and we tend to feel unable and so one of the exercises and there are several exercises i give and i really recommend doing all of them but one of them for example is making a list of all the things that, you know, that um, caused the failure or that caused you to not succeed. And then look and see, well, which of those things was in your control and which of them was not in your control. And a huge number of those were in your control. The effort was in your control. And the amount of preparation you put in was in your control. And the planning you put in to how you would get there was in your control. And the amount of information you had about how best to reach this goal was in your control. And when you start seeing about how many variables were and are in your control, then you can actually realize that, you know, I can tweak all of those. Those are things I can do differently next time. So it's not as if I'm, you know, helpless and I failed and so I'll never be able to succeed. Here is exactly a list of all the variables that are in my control that I can do differently and make sure that I'm then more successful next time. So that's one of the things I have people do. And in general, a lot of the exercises in the book do involve some kind of writing. Um, And I think that's very important. Why is writing, why is writing this down so helpful? Why, Why is it so important? Because writing, psychologically speaking, is a very important way for us to absorb certain messages that we want to give ourselves. We can't just think about something and, you know, and for that to filter in. We can think about the fact that maybe we're not helpless and maybe there are things we can do differently. But that's, and, and that'll, in our heads, we'll know it. But emotionally, for things to resonate with us emotionally, for things to absorb literally into our emotions, not just into our cognition, not just into our thoughts, but into our emotions, we have to have a deeper level of processing and writing is that deeper level of processing to me it's like the difference between when you're hungry thinking of all the food you have at home and actually eating it you know the eating the absorbing is how is what you do uh, is what happens when you write if you're just thinking about things then you're just thinking about the food you're not actually absorbing it and so the right analogy yeah when should people see a professional then? You talk about this after every um, wound. Uh, look, I think it's important because, you know, when, when, we have a, when, when we have a cut, we can actually gauge 
um, what's a cut that we can, you know, use a Band-Aid with. And it's usually we kind of know, ooh, that one might need stitches. Um, and when we have a cold, we know that I can manage the cold, and here's my fever now, so I can probably manage that. But you know what? Now I've been coughing for a week, probably need to see the doctor. We have a good sense of that when it comes to physical injuries. When it comes to psychological ones, we don't have the best gauge. We're not that sure. We actually don't even think most things need treatment, and even if we were, we're not sure how bad they have to get. I mean, I hear things all the time from people which are, to me, so shocking and alarming. I mean, just the other day, somebody was telling me this is not in my office, outside of my office. Yeah, you know, my sister was really feeling bad about them herself. Yeah, she stayed in bed for two months. Now, and oh. throwing that out as, yeah, she stayed in bed for two months. That is a very severe depression if somebody's staying in bed for two months. That literally requires medical intervention and way before the two-month line, way before the two-month line. And so when it comes to psychology, we don't have the knowledge and awareness of, no, 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 no. You need to see a professional for this. That is not a mild thing. So at the end of each chapter, I have a section, you know, which I entitled When to Consult a Mental Health Professional, and I try and give guidelines about if this is going on or if this happened, if you're still feeling this or if you're thinking that, you really do need to see a mental health professional. And I thought that was, I, I, I love that you included that so people can see that, yeah, sometimes this is big, we need help, and it's okay to get the help. Oh, by all means. It's more Let's than okay. Let's talk a little it's bit really about... Essential. What? I think it's, it's more than okay. It's essential. In other words, people it's don't essential. know that certain things... Know, like with my friend who was just... And this is... By the way, this person is highly educated. And I'll tell you another shocker. The, the, one of the people in that nuclear family is a doctor. And yet... There that person was in bed for two months, and they weren't quite thinking of it as severe depression that needs urgent medical intervention. Well, yeah. This book is needed... Um, let's talk a little bit about self-esteem. You talk about self-esteem as the um, immune system of the emotions. Yes. Talk a little bit. I mean, define what you mean by self-esteem and talk a little bit about its importance. Um, well, self-esteem is, is how we think about ourselves. It's our self-worth. It's, it's how we uh, feel about ourselves and, and you know, uh, the value that we feel. And, and the thing about self-esteem is it really does fluctuate. Our self-esteem is a little bit like the stock market. You can look at trends here or there, but it goes up and down minute by minute, hour by hour. We can wake up one morning. You know, I used to, I used to joke about, you know, it's like having a bad hair day and a good hair day. You have a bad self-esteem day and a good self-esteem day. And I'm, I'm not a hair specialist, so I don't know what causes good and bad hair days. And I'm not sure what causes good and bad self-esteem days. But we can sometimes wake up feeling not so great about ourselves. And we can sometimes wake up feeling really good about ourselves. And just we're waking up that way. But beyond the waking up part, you know, we, 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 we go through life and somebody, you know, comments on how nice we look or, or how great our presentation was or how amazing our kid did in the soccer match. And suddenly our self-esteem is feeling uh, a boost and it's feeling good. And then we have the, the neighbor who uh, doesn't say hello to us in the supermarket and then our self-esteem is in the dumps again. So it just goes up and down. Why it's important to try and be aware of where our self-esteem is and to try and boost it when it's low is because there are a lot of studies that are showing us that self-esteem can form a certain buffer uh, when we deal with certain uh, uh, life events like 
rejection or failure or anxiety or stress, that people whose self-esteem is higher are more resilient to those kinds of things. They impacted by them less and they heal from them and recover from them more quickly. And so I call self-esteem like an emotional immune system because just like our immune system can be strong or weak, and when it's strong, we are going to be more resistant. Everyone else is going to get that strain of the flu and the cold, but we won't. The same thing with our self-esteem. When it's higher, if we can boost it so that it is higher, we will be more protected. We will have an armor when we go out into life that will protect us better. And it's time again, I hate to say that, for us to go to break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little more about self-esteem because you have some very interesting concepts that need to be shared with our audience. This is Irene Collin with my guest, Guy Winch, saying stay tuned. We'll be right back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Have you ever felt that it's time to get out of the box? Why are you putting that project off? It's already there in your mind. What are you going to do today to change your life tomorrow? Listen for Live Your Life with Melissa Brown. Get ready to expand the capacity of your heart and mind. Move yourself beyond the mundane and get prepared to do what you've been called to do. There is no time like the present, and the whole world is waiting for you. Tune in Monday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at one 888 346-9141. That's one 346 9141 Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self-improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self-improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the self-improvement show. This is Irene Conlon. My guest today is Guy Winch. We're talking about emotional first aid. Guy, one of the things you talk about in the book is about the self-esteem industry. I hadn't thought of it as an industry. Tell me what you mean by that. 
Well, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought of it as an industry uh, for a long time. And then I had a few patients who would come in and tell me about, you know, the, the new product that they just acquired, usually for quite a bit of money. And, and this one does this thing with flashing lights and a subliminal tape of positive affirmations that it plays to you while you're looking at these flashing lights while lying on a specific kind of pillow. And it's this big kit that you got. And another one had another subliminal tape. And I said, well, I'd love to see it. And he brings it to me and and the messages are actually on the packaging so it's not that subliminal then is it if the messages are actually on the packaging but um, my question is if you can't hear it do you get it well my question isn't even if you hear it do you get it really yeah I mean, <laughs> that's that's i think the question and and if you get it when you hear it why do you need to not hear it to get it i mean that to me there's, <laughs> there's not a lot question. of <laughs> There's not a lot of research that shows that we need to absorb it, you know, subliminally if we can actually absorb it not. But, um, but you know, it's an industry, you know, and there are these workshops, these self-esteem weekends that people go on and all kinds of things. And, and, and the problem is that we have uh, one, you know, research after the other, one study after the other, and many, many of them that show that the vast majority, not all, of course, but the vast majority of these products, of these, uh, you know, tapes, and these mantras and these affirmations, uh, positive affirmations, do not work. They don't increase self-esteem. And when so you look at... Big, the, I'm sorry? Excuse me. The big question is what does increase self-esteem? Well, self-esteem is a very individual thing. So a general message of, let's say, I'm attractive and worthy of finding love or something like that, a general message is that you'll find on a, on a magnet or at the bottom of an email or on a calendar is fine. But in fact, the, the research shows that when people who have low self-esteem recite things like, I'm attractive and worthy of finding love, it makes them feel worse, not better. Because if they actually feel fundamentally unattractive and fundamentally unworthy of finding love, then just reciting that will be rejected by their unconscious minds because it falls outside the sphere of their belief systems. And so it's the people whose self-esteem is lowest who are most likely to be damaged by just generic positive affirmations because they actually don't believe them. And, so if and it go- seems that even a compliment for people who have low self-esteem doesn't have a place to go. They have no way to receive it. Is that true? Do you see that? That's absolutely true. And in fact, there's research about it, that when you compliment people whose self-esteem is low, they not only reject the compliment, it makes them feel worse. Because again, it conflicts with their fundamental belief systems that I'm not great. I'm not terrific. And so when you're saying to them, you're great or you're terrific, in a, of course, in a specific way, they reject that. There's even research that shows that when their partners compliment something about them, you know, about their relationship skills, they feel worse about themselves and actually even worse about the relationship. So self-esteem is very individualized, and the exercises that I give in the book are all very individualized. You have to come up with the things that you're going to affirm. I can't say it for you because you have to be able to think about the things about you that are indeed valuable, that you know are valuable, and those are the kinds of affirmations you have to be able to work with. And so those exercises and the ones I give in the book are all very personal and very individualized because when it comes from you, when you're the one to come up with what speaks to you, that will not be rejected by your unconscious self. That will not conflict with your fundamental beliefs. That has been shown to work. 
What about assessing strengths? Can people with low self-esteem really evaluate their own strengths? They can come up with a lot of weaknesses, but can they be anything like objective about it? How can you be objective? Well, look, in, in my office, I, I do this all the time. I'll say to someone, well, tell me, you know, somebody who's feeling really rejected or very alone, I say, well, tell me what would make you good in a relationship. And they'll say nothing. And I'll say, okay, fine, that was very glib, but I don't buy it. What about this? Would you be loyal? Oh, yeah, I'll be loyal. Okay, would, would you be a good listener? Oh, yeah, I'd be a good listener. Okay, would, would you be supportive if your partner has, was trying to do something? Would you be supportive? Yeah, I'd be supportive of them. And on and on and on I could go. And when I suggest these things to people, they go, yeah, I would be loyal and I would be supportive and I would be compassionate and I would be a good listener and I would be emotionally available and I would be you know, open to doing these kinds. And they can come up with a huge list. Do you know what I mean? And so then, so it's about not just going with that first feeling of, no, there's nothing worthy about me. Think about it really. Or somebody who's been chronically unemployed and I say to them, well, what, do you, what, what value do you have? Well, there's nothing. I said, okay, you're looking at your resume and there's nothing? Nothing. I said, okay, well, would you be responsible? Well, yeah, I'd be responsible. Would you be on time? Yeah, I'd be on time. Would you be reliable? Yes. What about your work ethic? Well, I have a good work ethic. So, again, you can start generating this long list of things that are actually very valuable to employers, that they recognize are very, very valuable, and that they can actually stand behind and say, yeah, I am those things. And so self-esteem is about finding the stuff that you know to be true, that you know to be valuable, um, and affirming that and focusing on that. And where do they go from there? Can they, can, are they able, are people who have extremely low self-esteem able then to ratchet it up enough so that they can begin to see their own worth? I think so, but for people who have very low self-esteem, it's, it's, a, it's not something you'll do in an hour. I, I suggest exercises in that chapter, and I suggest people do them on a daily basis. You have to think of it like you're trying to get in shape for something. You know what I mean? So you have to put in the time. You have to put in the effort. But if you actually focus on this, if you make it a program and say, I'm going to work on improving my self-esteem, and the way you do that is you don't keep going out and hoping somebody will go, okay, you know, you're, you're okay. You actually want to work on yourself feeling that you're okay. And so if you put in the time and if you do these exercises that I suggest, and there are several of them in that chapter that you can do every single day and should, then yes, you will absolutely build your self-esteem. You'll, you'll boost it, you'll build it, and it'll start to translate into real-world returns as well. But the first thing you have to do is put in the time. That's, there's no quick solution when it comes to self-esteem. Are you with me, Irene? Okay, I don't know what happened there.
We're right up at the end of the show. Guy, what's next for you? Do you have another book in the mill? Think about it at the moment. I'm really busy with this <laughs> I one. I hope so. <laughs> when you have another one, you're going to have to let me know. You're going to have to come back. I Absolutely. What's the last thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today? The last thought I'd like to leave people with is really start thinking about your psychological health as something that warrants your attention, that you can do something about. And don't just hurt. Start thinking about how you can heal and how you can apply emotional first aid so that you don't have to hurt. You know, the exciting part of this is that you give people trust in their own ability to deal with some of these things that they really didn't know how to approach before. Yes, and I, I hope that people can take that. And I think people will feel very empowered when they start to use these techniques because I think they'll really feel, wow, there is something I can do. Wow, it really helped. Wow, I can even teach it to my kids. Yeah, and many of us were grown up with the idea that you don't talk about yourself in a positive way. It's called bragging and pride and all of those things, and it's, it's time we overcame that. Right. And also, a lot of the exercises they give are writing exercises. They're between you and you. You don't have to advertise them or tell other people about them, but you need to be able to acknowledge it even if you're not speaking about it. Nice thought. Next week's guest is Eli Chia Viello, who's going to talk to us more about the pioneer heart surgeon, Dr. Lester Savage, and his book, Open Your Heart to the Magic of Love. What a, he has such a compelling story. Guy, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate your work so much. Thank you, Irene. It's been such a pleasure. It's always nice having you on. This is Irene Conlon with my guest Guy Winch saying thank you for being with us today and come back next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.